0: from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we, when we had come in the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for, the ship, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem." When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Okay, would you join me as we pray? Oh God, each of us needs to hear from you. We don't uh, desire to live um, in a way where we miss the most important things, things of soul, things of eternity. And so we pray that you might speak straight through to our hearts by the power of your spirit, because Jesus is present in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want you to think of one thing that you deeply desire. One thing that you deeply desire, I mean at the top of the list. Uh, Maybe it's to be really, really good at something and be recognized for it. Maybe it's to have acceptance and love in a friend group of a particular person in your life for which you've longed it. Maybe it's a longing, a desire, a want to for romantic love. Maybe it's to have a certain type of body. Maybe it's to have a family. Think about that one thing. Because um, in many ways that one thing is like a steering wheel that drives your will. That drives your commitment and desire. And one of the things that we find is that our wills crash into one another, don't they? Uh, so maybe you've been to an amusement park before and um, you've been on the bumper cars, right? And the, the whole thing is designed to bump into one another, right? There's always that one person that's like, I'm going to try to just not get bumped into it won't happen and life is like that too as much as we try not to bump into one another's wills we bump into them we crash into them even the will of God even the will of God now the Christian faith teaches that because God is a person he has a will And we see this most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ who identified himself as the Son of God. Now there's a time in the Gospels where Jesus says this. That he had come down from heaven to do the will of the one who sent him. Think about that. Two things that that don't quite compute with us. First of all, he says, I have come down from heaven. So he's claiming to be divine, right? The Christian faith teaches that God is one, but there are three who are God. He's the son of God. He's claiming to be divine. Therefore, he has a totally free and sovereign will. And yet, in coming down from heaven and assuming humanity, becoming a real person, He submitted that will to serve God. Sovereignty and submission together with the will of God. But this is the thing that I think is more stunning. No one was more satisfied or joyful than him. (laughs) Even though he said he had come to live and essentially like a slave, like the lowest slave completely satisfied and free. Now, I want to take you back to wants and desires. Think about a time when you had a couple days to do basically what you wanted, right? Maybe it was uh, you had a couple days off, it's a vacation, and you had your list, staycation or whatever it was, you're like, I'm going to do these tasks, or, you know, I kind of get this way. and I, And I would say, it really began once I got married and have kids, because you know a lot of my wants kind of went away. Uh, that's a troublesome statement. Let me see. <laughs> I love being married. I love my kids. But the point is, right, like sort of the freedom. So if Meg would go away for a couple days, man, I had my list. I was like, OK, I'm going to go exercise, because I don't want to be a total. Everything else is going to counter, uh, be counter to this exercise. You know, I'm going to eat the food that I want to eat. I'm going to go that. I'm going to watch the show that I want to want. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. All these different wants. And what I found out was when I had that for a couple days, guess what? I didn't want it anymore. I was bored. It didn't have power to bring me joy. It didn't have power to motivate my will. And isn't it true that when you want something so, so much, it starts to feel like a master, starts to feel like a slave master. Now, the Bible has an interesting way to present this thing that kind of brings things together. It says, delight yourselves in the Lord, in the Lord's will, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Many of you have heard that before. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so this idea that satisfaction and fulfillment ultimately comes when I begin to to love his will and understand it. So there's this idea that I I can experience the will of God in a way that leads to delight even when it's really hard. What I want to talk about tonight is when God's will is hard. When it's hard. And that's what we find really in this passage. I know you were probably like, all this geography, like, whoa, well, you know, we're going to all these places. And first of all, just to remind you that this is one of the indications that the Bible's like a historical story. You know, it's, it really occurred In fact, they put all those things in there. But on top of that, what do you find? Paul is in one place believing God's will is taking him this way, and these other people that love him, and it says we, which probably means even Luke, who is writing, they're at a different place. How do you release people to God's will when it's not what you like? How do you trust God's will when you feel like you're the only one that's believing it? There's a tension here. And so two things I want to bring before us. The practice of discerning God's will, understanding it, and then dedicating ourselves to it through the eyes of this passage. So let's first look at discerning the will of God. There are two aspects to the will of God that theologians talk about. The one is this idea of the hidden or decretive will of God, the hidden will of God. The other is the revealed or prescriptive will of God, or perceptive will of God. Moses says something that I think will clarify this. Okay, so if you felt like, I don't know what that means. Moses once said this to Israel, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. There he's talking about the word of God. And there you have both the hidden secret sovereign will of God and the revealed will of God. The first is this idea, excuse me, that God God reveals some of what he plans to do, some of his purposes in the counsel of his will, even some of his character. But there's a whole bunch that we don't get to see. So I I, I was watching... um, uh, years ago, Meg bought me the, the 10th anniversary Les Mis concert. I have to tell you, I, I, it's the original cast. I think it's better than the other ones, but that's my bias. You know? You know? <laughs> Thanks for that affirmation. But if, if you know the musical, even if you don't, at the end of it, there's this medley of stories and song, One More Day. And in it, you know, you have these, like, stories that are in tension uh, as they're singing. Will Jean Valjean really be free of his past? And will Javert finally, the police officer, you know, embrace that? Will Marius and Cosette, the two lovers, finally be together? Will they get together? We don't know. Will the revolution succeed? So these things are being sung, you know, and they're weaving in and out, and then all of it crescendos to this one line. Tomorrow we'll discover what our God in heaven has in store. That's the hidden will of God. That's the secret will of God. The revealed will of God is often called the moral will of God. What he expects us to do to live justly, to live lovingly, to live righteously. And there are times that these things actually seem in conflict, right? You especially see this with the Hebrew prophets, where they're going, I can't understand when God uses unjust nations to discipline Israel. It seems like, well, how can his hidden will and reveal, I, I don't understand that. One theologian says this. God's will is sometimes thwarted because he wills it to be. Because he has given one of his desires precedent over another. All that to say that as you keep those categories in mind, they shed some light on what's happening in our passage and what happens in our lives. On the surface, it might seem, again, that there's a contradiction here. Last week we heard Paul Paul say that uh, the Spirit of God has told me that I am going to go to these different cities and basically be persecuted and imprisoned and beaten and finally go to Jerusalem and the same will happen. And you have this guy, Abigus that shows up with this very traumatic way, takes this belt, ties it around and says, whoever has this belt, this is going to happen to you. At the same time, over here, you have these sincere groups of believers. The first group, it said, were led by the Spirit and said to Paul, don't go. Urging him, don't go. How do we understand that sort of thing? Because it relates to our lives. Well, the Bible says you should always read clear in light of unclear. And what do we know here? We know that the Spirit of God has clearly said that this is Paul's, Jesus, when Paul got converted, Jesus said, he's going to see how much love costs to suffer. His leader as the church. And so what we have here is these well-meaning believers, yes, the Spirit communicated to them this warning, but then they interpreted it with what they wanted in their desires for Paul. They loved Paul. Do you ever find yourself in that tension? Where in a sense you feel like, no, I know this is true of God. But your desires then cause you to want something that might be contrary to what God means. It's this rub between the hidden and the revealed will of God. Our views on God's will get bent and biased by our desires. That's what I'm saying. Uh, One of my mentors, a guy named Scotty Smith, who writes a daily prayer, uh, puts this into a prayer that I think is really helpful. He says, for many years, Lord, for many years, I believed if I prayed hard enough and long enough, that if I was really filled with and tuned into the Holy Spirit, I could know the specifics of your will for my life well in advance of any decision that needed to be made. And... That if it was your will, life would be enjoyable, pleasant, and hassle-free. If I bought the right car, it would never break down. If I bought the right house, the roof wouldn't leak. If I married the right person, we wouldn't ever disagree. If I went to the right college, I'd get the right job, and life would be all right. Right? Does that resonate with you? View of God's will. But you look here with Paul. Paul said this when he talked about how he understood God's spirit leading. He said this. We read this last week. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await for me. Paul is in tune to the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have all the information he wants, and things ain't going to be all right. They're not going to be all right. They will be, but they won't be too, right? It's not going to be easy. You find a development that happens in Paul in the book of Acts and that is early on in his ministry, he really seems to be in control. We're going to go to this place, I'm going to go to this place, we're going to build a church here, we're going to build a church here. But then later in his ministry, He doesn't have that control about his destiny. The Holy Spirit takes over. The further in he, the further he walks into God's will, the less control he feels. His burning desire is to go preach the gospel in in, uh, Rome, which is the center of the Gentile world. And he does in chains. In chains. You say a similar thing with uh, the Apostle Peter. After Jesus restores Peter to himself, after Peter had denied him, he says this to him. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter was a guy that liked to have control, and he said, Peter, as you follow my will, what you're going to find, your life ain't going to be easy. You're not going to like it, Peter. You're not going to like it. But it's where my will will take you. You see this contrast, wherever you wanted, where you don't want to go. So two things I want to hit before we move to the next point. Because I know um, some of you right now are saying, why isn't he qualifying this? I, I need more qualifications. Well, we do, but the will of God two things I want us to see the will of God will involve loss of control risk and experience suffering so this morning I went to exercise and uh, my coach coach of the class at one point was trying to motivate everybody and she got onto control and she said everything in life is under your control Right, that's typically how we kind of motivate people. You are in charge. You are in control. And I wanted to say, have you looked at this body lately? (laughs) You know, I mean, I'm just fighting to keep it within the lines. You know, I'm trying to. I'm barely making it here. Everything's within your control. So, on one of our trips to Turkey, our church has a relationship. uh, Actually, there's another trip coming up. On our first trip, I think it was. Uh, Turkey was at a place where there was some instability, there were protests going on, and there was some level of warning from the State Department. And uh, closer to the trip, I got a call from uh, a father of one of the adult folks on the trip, and uh, this is a very godly guy, a very godly guy, uh, a minister, someone I looked to with lots of respect, and he said, Glenn, I don't think you guys should go on this trip. I don't think you ought to go. Now you can imagine, I was like, I gotta take that seriously. And so, you know, we prayed, we conferred with people that sort of understand these warnings. But you know what led us finally to go? It was this belief. Christians are not supposed to expect a life of zero risk. Christians are not supposed to aim for lives of zero risk. So we went, there were protests, we had a great trip. We've gone back a lot of times. So, living and ministering in DC has some risk, doesn't it? Right? There's some danger involved. That's not always easy. I remember the first time we took an elders' trip, and one of our elders, Bob Baldwin, had a home up in Grafton, Vermont. A lot of, you know, it's like a little slice of heaven. It's quiet Vermont town. And I remember the first night we got there sort of late, and, you know, it's all these white board houses and these lamps, you know. And I remember we decided to take a walk, and we are just walking, and it was so strange not to be going, (laughs) right? I mean, I've been in the city, you know, you're in the city, and you're just, when you're walking, you know, you're sort of like hyped up. It was just a straight, right? There's risk to do ministry and live in the city. Thank you for being here because Christians are not supposed to design their life around zero risk. They don't have to. We'll get to why. Paul had said once about the will of everybody, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Believe and suffer. This is the call to come unto Jesus. Jesus. I want to say to you, if you're someone looking into the Christian faith here, and you're wondering, will the Christian faith make my life better? I want to say yes and no. It won't make your life easier, but it will give it purpose and joy that you've never experienced before. But it won't make your life easier. Paul actually says, for his sake, suffer, engage in the same conflict I'm in. And you know what's interesting about that phrase? It comes in the letter, in the book that's primary. One of the primary key words that shows up is joy. Joy. The theme of the book is about joy, but he says that. But the second all is this sort of discerning God's will changes the questions you ask about your life. So American culture presses us to wake up and ask this question. Am I happy? Am I satisfied? Brandy spoke about this in her prayer. Right? Am I happy? Am I satisfied? That's what our culture presses, and even puts it as a justice issue. So, the gospel does this work, and I and and I don't know if you find yourself doing that, but you know, I regularly find myself looking sideways or scrolling and going, "Is that person having a better life than me? Are they happier than me? Because that's going to bother me." You know, this is what we ask. The Christian faith changes the questions where it's not, does this make me happy, but does this make me more like Jesus? We prayed about it earlier. Now, many times over the years, I've sat with people that have had sincere questions about God's will. Should I take this job? Should I move here? Should I buy this house? Should I date this person? Right? And we do our best, you know, we put our heads together, we pray, we talk about all the important things. But, you know, the truth is all of that is the hidden will of God. You don't know. You don't know. It's the hidden will of God. But this is the revealed will of God. God's will for your life is to make you more like Jesus. That's his will. Really simple in many ways. If we woke up every day and said, God, I know what your will is for me today. It is to conform me into the moral beauty of Jesus Christ that I look that way. We probably would think about those questions a little bit differently. A quote, at the center of self-will is me carving a world in my image, but at the center of prayer is God carving me in his son's image. So, discerning God's will, but let's move to the last point bit more briefly, dedicating. So once we discern God's will, how do we actually begin to walk in the hard will of God? It's not easy. Um, you know, I was, I was searching around, and it was funny. Uh, I came across this thing. I've never read them. You probably haven't read them, and I don't, I'm not getting down on them because I don't like to say that about books I haven't read. But this guy was called like the uh, self-help pit bull. And his book was, shut up, stop whining, and get a life. Right? That's part of the American thing, too. And you might feel like this is what the Bible is saying. God's will is hard. Shut up, stop whining, get in line, and do God's will. Thankfully, that's not what we get. First of all, how do we then do it? Number one is we talk to God about how hard his will is. We talk to him about how hard his will is. Openness and vulnerability. You find that in this passage here, isn't it? These friends that are well-meaning Christians say to Paul, this is hard for us. This is hard because... We think you're going to die, and we love you, and you're our leader, and the Spirit has told us that you're going to face lots of stuff here. And our sense is that that probably means God doesn't want you to do it. And then Paul comes back and says, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Breaking my heart. I love you. This isn't easy. This is where they are. You can be in the center of God's will and experience a wide range of emotions. This idea, if I'm in the center of God's will, then I'm just in this place of sort of stoic purpose peace. Uh, when Meg and I um, were dating, and we dated a very short time, um, when it came to jumping on the marriage thing, you know, I, I was all in, and then I was like, what did I do? You know, just kind of the decision, you know, the decision. I was like, oh, no. And so I met, went and saw a pastor friend of mine who I respect, do respect, and I said, how will I know? How will I know? She, sorry about that. I couldn't help, but, it, you know, I just said it, and there it was, and I know many of you were thinking it too. So that may be the first time I have sung in a sermon, and, and the last time, Lord willing, right? Right? But um, I said, How will I know? And he said, You'll feel a peace. I love that guy, but it was the worst advice you could ever get. <laughs> where does it say that? There's a why. Do you think Paul's like, This is a peace. When God's will is hard and costly, the peace comes after the faith. That's where it comes. So if you're, if you're sitting there going, this is really hard. I'm waiting for that moment. You know, that thing, too, where people say, if it's the will of the Lord, there won't be any confusion. There to be some confusion here. They're working through the... I'm saying, let's leave some room for some process people, right? Everything wrapped up. But the reason... Paul's example and what's here is compelling, but what really is compelling is Jesus. Jesus in the garden, Right? If you know that story, right before Jesus is going to go to the cross, let me remind you, Jesus is on point with God's will. Jesus is the incarnation of God's will. And if there was anything in God's will, it was that Jesus was going to go and die for the sins of his people. I mean, it was prophesied all through the Old Testament, and he knew it, he regularly talked about it. If anything was God's will, it is that he was going to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that he was going to take the judgment for you and me, that he was going to come for an atonement. If anything was God's will, it was that. And it seems almost heretical in that prayer that he would say, if this will can pass, please let it. What does that teach us? You can talk to God when his will is hard. Jesus was fully obedient, saying, this is horror. It says that he was sorrowful, troubled, and he sweat blood. You can talk to God when his will is hard. And I think that actually enables you to move ahead in following his hard will. Because the second time he prays, he says, my father, if this cannot pass, let your will be done. He's moved now to not saying if it's possible, but if it's not. But that first thing had to happen. Paul expresses turmoil, but also dedication. Let me give you this quote. Would we? This is from an old theologian, so if you feel like it sounds old, it's because it is. Um, would we know whether we are born again and growing in grace? Let us see how it is with us in the matter of our wills. Can we bear disappointment? Can we put up patiently with unexpected trials and vexations? Can we see our favorite plans and darling schemes crossed without murmur and complaint? Can we sit still and suffer as well as we go up and down and work actively? There are things that prove whether we have the mind of Christ. It ought never to be forgotten that warm feelings and joyful frames are not the truest evidences of grace. A mortified will is far more valuable possession. Even our Lord himself did not always rejoice, but he could always say, thy will be done. Right? And so the way that we dedicate ourselves, is if we're willing to have that moment, we can have it. But we've got to have more than that. We've got to have more. So let me just wrap this around here. I've said this before that the Bible talks about both putting off sin and putting off disobedience, but you also got to put on stuff. It's not enough just to say no. You have to be able to say yes to things, right? Something has to fulfill you. How are you going to be able to have the, the emotional and spiritual resources to walk in the hard will of God? How's that going to happen? Well, I want to take you ahead to something that Paul, Paul reflects a little bit more on what he just, what we catch in this narrative, there's a moment where Paul reflects on it. He says this, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. There's things I'd like to do and get done. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. It's that first part I want to draw your attention to. Why would Paul say that my chief desire is to go be with Jesus? Because Paul knew Jesus, and Paul knew Jesus loved him, and Paul loved Jesus, and it was that love that enabled him to walk forward. He eventually was martyred. He eventually would see Jesus. How was Jesus able to sustain the hard walk of God's will? He tells us in John 10... He says that the love the Father has for him is connected to why he lays down his life. Ultimately, you and I have to have something more than an easy life. We we, we have to have something deep in our hearts that's relationally growing. Right? Sometimes we think about the afterlife. And for some people, whether you're a Christian here or not, people will say this, and I I get it. This idea that when I die, you know, I can't wait to see that spouse I lost or that grandparent that shaped me or this child even that I've lost, this best friend. Amen. But I hope you meet all of them after you've blown right by them into the arms of Jesus. Because your heart and soul was, I can't wait to see him. There's one desire and want that that will never wear out for you. It won't be like that day of all my wants I told you about. It's knowing God in Christ. It's this psalm that says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. Your steadfast love is better than life. Therefore, I can walk the hard will of God. And so, all of us, I know, you've either experienced the hard will of God, you're experiencing it right now, or you will. And we have one another. We have the community to remind us, right? To pray with us and even talk to God for us and with us. And to say, I don't like this God, like those believers, that I don't like what's happening to my friend or my child. But we also have a community that can say, you know something? his love is better than life his love is better than any will that I could conjure up this is the will of God let's pray we thank you Jesus that your will was the food your food was to do the will of the father that was the love of the father that carried you through hell we thank you for saints Paul was just a just a regular person. And we know from his story, Lord, that his heart was full of hatred for you. So we know that you can work today in our hearts. I pray especially for those today that are facing the hard will of God. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would open their lips and their heart to you and they could pour themselves out. And then I pray that you would just give them a great, Holy Spirit hug and tell them, I love you. I love you and my love is better than life.